Hello and welcome to The Walk Podcast. I am your host, Tony Smith, and with me today is Heather Caster, author of Blindsided to Blessed, My Family's Journey from Teen Suicide to Finding a Purpose. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. You are now an author, but before we dive into that, can you just simply tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do, just your daily life? I am from um, Jackson, Michigan, originally. Uh, I now live in Eaton Rapids, Michigan with my husband, Michael. We have a 21-year-old daughter named Michaela. She is a senior at Grand Valley State. I am a teacher at the middle school with you, Mr. Smith. Woo! Yay! I originally started teaching in elementary um, and then had an opportunity to go to middle school and teach computer science, and I've been here ever since, and I love it. Awesome. Let's talk a little bit about your daughter, Lauren. So can you give us a little bit of insight on who she was as a person, personality, hobbies, interests? Sure. Lauren was always kind of one of those tough nut to crack sort of girl. Well, I guess when she got to be a little bit older, like 10, 11, 12, you know, preteen age, she could talk a mile a minute and talk your ear off about anything. And then other times she was just like super quiet and withdrawn. Growing up though, when she was little, very curious, very into animals, wanting to make sure that, you know, the animals were taken care of, even down to, I have this picture of her looking really super close at a dragonfly, ironically enough, sitting on a fence post. So that was kind of her. So, I mean, personality traits, very witty, Definitely had some sarcasm in there, a uh, healthy dose of it, but still could, could dish it out and as well as take it. So, which was a good quality. Uh, as far as hobbies, she was kind of trying to find that. She tried different sports, soccer, basketball. I don't think she tried dance. Uh, Michaela did, but I don't think Lauren did. Uh, then she finally got into horses and riding horses. So that was a really great thing for her to do in sixth and seventh grade. So that was a new kind of interest in her. She'd already, she'd always loved horses. And then um, a friend or my cousin raises horses and, and trains and, and gives lessons and stuff. So that's kind of how we got connected. So that was, that was kind of her in a nutshell. As far as goals, you know, sometimes I think back and wonder like, what did she want to be? What did she want to go into, into, into college for if that's what she did? And I know that I came across some writing recently that talked about her wanting to be a teacher. So I think she was kind of leaning towards like a special ed teacher, but you know, she kind of had that interest. Um, She always liked kind of looking out for the underdog, you know, in her classes. She really liked the class that her sister Michaela took in high school, which um, connected gen ed students with special ed students at the high school and stuff. So I think that that was a path that she would have taken in high school. So let's dive in a little bit about your book. So in chapter one, right off the get-go, you really share the details about what happened. Mm -hmm. Just in the events that led up to her death, uh, could you just summarize that for us? And you can go into as much detail as you want. Okay, so uh, Saturday morning, we were going to the gym, and I was, it sounds silly, but I was looking for a pair of socks and went up to my other daughter's room to look for them. She's away at college, and uh, I found a, a vape pen, which I found out that's what it was was kind of curious at the time as to what this thing actually was. And so in, you know, a series of events, it kind of came out that it had belonged to Lauren. 
or at least I had thought so when my husband and I decided to run a couple errands. And so I told her that I was going to ask a couple of her friends, like if this really was hers. And I think that just kind of set everything in motion. So, I mean, the only thing I can think of is that she thought she was going to be in trouble when we got home, which, yeah, she would have. She would have been grounded, probably would have had her phone taken away for a while. That was always kind of a big issue with her. So, but that's, that's kind of what happened. Just stumbled upon something that she was making a bad choice with and, but we never really had the chance to discuss it with her. Your title of the book starts off with blindsided. Uh, so you use the word blindsided and nobody saw this coming. So I, I had the pleasure of having Lauren in class in eighth grade. She was wonderful, compassionate. She was sweet, difficult to read at times. And we had even talked about that, but there were no signs. There were no hints, like nobody, nothing. Like it was completely, like you said, blindsided. So in your research, so after the events that happened, is it typical for there to be no evidence for someone contemplating suicide? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't necessarily think it's typical in some of the people with some of the people that I've met um, who have lost children to suicide. Quite a few of them were kind of in our situation where it was very unexpected, but kind of in doing a little bit more research with it. There always tends to be like signs, but people don't necessarily pick them up as signs of, of having either some depression or, or thoughts of suicide. So like, for example, there are signs, but they're not necessarily noticed or taken. I don't want to say taken seriously, but like for our example, like when I look back, yeah, she had just turned 14, 16 days prior and But even, you know, when she was 12, 13, sure, she spent a lot of time in her room. Was she moody? Absolutely. Was she picky about her food? Yes. You know, so there were so many things that like we look back now and think, oh, that that must have been what that was. But at the time, we thought it was typical teenage girl behavior and didn't really think of it as anything other than that. I've also, you know, in going back um, on her phone and, you know, other things, found some other questionable behavior that she had done little videos of that I found on her phone. Looks like she may have experimented with some alcohol in the house. And so there were some other things that I found like afterwards, but they were so hidden. We had no, no clue. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of what I've discovered is that it's, I think it's split. Like there are signs of it, but then there are other times when there just isn't and they're not picked up. So you and your family, the the pain that you guys went through, unimaginable. I mean, mm-hmm. without a doubt. Were there moments of doubt where you thought, I'm not going to make it? I would say right at first. Um, definitely right at first. I, I distinctly remember, you know, I, I stayed, we stayed with my sister and brother-in-law for like the first couple of weeks um, because everything had taken place in our home. And so we had to have some you know, renovations done or whatever. So I remember talking with her one day and saying, how am I going to go back to school? How am I going to go back to work? How am I going to function and do this? So I definitely remember having those thoughts, but not for a really long time. And I think a lot of it had to do with just the fact that 
we had Michaela. You know, we we have a daughter that we still have to nurture and and raise and take care of and and help her through losing her sister and going, you know, transitioning into an only child and having just different pressures on her. And so I think it definitely at first, and then maybe during that first year, every once in a while, but I never remember having that thought of I'm not going to make it. It was more of, I can't believe we're doing this or I can't believe like this is our life now. So did you ever feel any sort of guilt for what happened? That's a really good question. When I was, I think I was writing the, yeah, it was when I was writing the book and my editor of the book asked me, she said, what are you guilty about? Or she really questioned my use of the word guilt. And I finally, actually, I like looked up the definition of guilt and and read it. And I thought, no, that's not how I feel. I feel like it was more of regret. It was more regret for not seeing signs, not checking her phone more often, not having conversations that at the time I didn't know I had to have. So yeah, it was more regret. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I think that's just the difference. Like I, I went from having that, you know, I felt guilty because to turning it into I regretted that. So that was kind of my change in my thought process. So if I were to turn the word from guilt to regret, Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of a two-part question, but do you still feel regret? And if so, or if not, how did you overcome it or how do you deal with it? Mm-hmm. I do sometimes still feel it, you know, especially, you know, just seeing her friends and her classmates hit these pivotal moments in their life of learning to drive and getting the driver's license and homecomings. And, you know, I sometimes think back to if only I had and then fill in the blank, right? Um, you know, regret for ha- not handling the situation that day differently. You know, I should have done this or I should have done that. And I mentioned in the book that our we had a counselor come the day after it happened to where we were staying and all of us sat there and met. And one of the first things he asked us to do was to think of one thing that we could have done or said differently, but it wouldn't have changed the outcome. And I think I've stuck with that. Like I've used that line and that advice with other parents that I've talked to and other people I've met that that just really helped me. Like that really clicked with me. Like, sure, I could have not run the errand and I could have talked to her about this, but the outcome could have possibly still occurred either down the road or whatever. So that's kind of how I guess I've really gone through it. And the fact that focusing so much on regret and the past is not going to bring her back that was the other kind of thing for me was I can I can regret and say that till the day I die but it's not going to change what happened and it's not going to bring her back so yeah kind of how I've done it
our Bible verse for the day is Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So we're here with Heather Castor, author of Blindsided to Blessed, My Family's Journey from Teen Suicide to Finding a Purpose. So we're going to continue our conversation with uh, this this topic of not just uh, Lauren's death, but suicide in general. So social media, I want to talk about that for just a moment. How did you think or how did you find social media playing a factor in what happened? Sure. This is this happened a lot of, of course, after the fact, um, after you know, looking at her phone and kind of, you know, digging through things. Um, when she was in sixth grade, she was bullied on Snapchat. So much so, or I wouldn't say so much so, but to the point where, you know, one of the comments that was made to her there was um, KYS, which stands for kill yourself. And that was back in sixth grade. So we, you know, took care of that at the time. The school took care of it as, as much as they could, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, by the time we got to eighth grade, one of the girls, it was her, one of her friend's sisters that had mainly done most of it. And, but her friend was kind of a part of it, you know, at the time, but in eighth grade, she kind of told me, she's like, mom, like, I'm fine with this. Like, I'm okay now. You know, she, meaning her friend that was also an eighth grader, she's like, she's scared to be around you because she thinks you don't like her. I was like, well, kind of don't really like what she did two years ago. And, but she kept saying like, mom, I'm over it. And I'm like, okay. And I do believe that she was, I think she had grown past that and, and it was, it was okay. So, but you know, and some of the things that I looked at while I was monitoring her phone use, I would see just like, you know, using the filters on Instagram and on Snapchat. And I do think, and again, looking back after she had, had died to look at her phone, seeing a lot of like comparing herself to others that a lot of teen girls do. So I think it was kind of affecting her self-esteem a little bit. I know that she had some issues with that. It was getting better once she got braces and and started feeling, I think, more comfortable in her own skin. But I know she had a rough patch in like sixth and seventh grade. So 12, 13 years old. So, but I think that was the biggest thing. I think she, I found that it looked like she was seeking approval on social media, found one app in particular that offers anonymous feedback. So she was, I don't know what she was putting on there, but I saw some of the feedback and the comments and they were awful. They were, I mean, I would use the the word vulgar, some of them. And I was just astonished that first of all, like, why did she do that? Like, why did she have to, whatever she put out there, like, I don't even know. But yeah, just, just to get that back. So I think that was a big part of her too, was just seeking that approval and, and feeling like she was a part of something bigger. You know, her, her older sister was an athlete, a successful athlete, you know, three sports and, and kind of had her niche. And I think Lauren was still struggling, I think a little bit to find that and maybe to, to live up to that a little bit. So, I, but I think social media was that just played a big part in just self confidence, comparing to others, and and then again just the the meanness of it. So, in chapter seven of your book, you briefly mentioned some apps that you had stumbled mm-hmm. upon, and you kind of alluded to them. But for those that are parents, specifically parents to young teenagers, what are some of the apps that you mm-hmm. weren't aware of? Um, if you remember the names, and then that you could just bring to light saying these are not good. 
Right. Well, just the one that I spoke of is really the only thing I can remember. I think it's called Lipsy. I think that's what it was called. That was the one that you could give honest, anonymous feedback. So the some of the things that these these kids posted, she had no idea who said them. So that was that was really unfortunate. That's really the only one I can think of. But just in my job now with computer science and talking about social media and, and being a good digital citizen and, you know, Snapchat and Instagram, they can be damaging just because, you know, A, with Snapchat, things disappear. So they think, but they kind of do. And then, you know, she got bullied when she took a screenshot of some of them to show me because then they were calling her a snitch and, you know, cause the person knows that you take a screenshot of it. And so I think all in all, it's just not safe for, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. I don't know like what age it's going to be okay. But I think the the more parents can hold off in letting their kids use social media, such as some of those apps and things, the better off they will be. So yeah, there has to be a certain level of maturity with them. And for 11 year old to have that maturity is just not there yet. Right. It takes a little bit of time. Right. Yeah. So what is the connection between suicide and mental illness that you've discovered? That's a really good question. You know, I think that was a phrase that I used in my book, and and I don't know if I said it, and I think it just because it makes me feel, I want to say feel better, but my first thought was, like, she must have had an undiagnosed mental illness. Like, why else would she have decided to do this? But, you know, in researching and reading, that's not necessarily the case. You don't have to have depression necessarily to attempt or, you know, commit suicide. Sorry, not commit suicide. You're not supposed to say that. Die by suicide. But sometimes it's just other stressors. It's just a buildup. It's the last straw. There's so many other things that she may have gone to the doctor and they might not have said that she suffered from depression or anxiety, but just whatever it was that, you know, the buildup of the day. I mean, one thing I have read is that it's never just one thing. And so that was something that my husband and I really had to understand and accept is that, you know, at first we felt completely responsible, like I did, because I handled the situation the way I did. And of course, my friends say we would have done probably the same thing, you know. And then so, you know, knowing that it's never just one thing, that there were obviously things leading up to her decision as irrational, as impulsive as it was. Yeah. So that's kind of what I've discovered is that you don't, and then people that do have depression and anxiety, there may be some that never have suicidal thoughts. So I think it's just, it's a mix. So our Bible verse for this episode, Matthew 5, 4, this was the verse that you used in a sub note underneath the heading of chapter nine. Blessed are those who mourn they will be comforted in the midst of like the darkest moment of your life. Did you experience a supernatural comfort? And if so, could you elaborate on it? You know, I think it all started when it it sounds silly because we just talked about social media, but on Facebook, you know, I mean, I stayed off of it for a, a very long time, but maybe it like a few days, I guess I should say, but it seemed like a long time. But, you know, once, and I saw like the comments that people were saying and they were praying for us. I mean, hundreds of people and people that I 
didn't even know, but they saw it on, a, you know, and um, so I think that was the first part was like, wow, you know, I always, you know, you always see people that say, you know, please pray for, or I'm praying for, and I never really understood that, like, prior to this happening, like, I didn't really, like, I always felt funny saying it, because I'm like, well, am I really praying for them? Like, I don't know how to do that kind of thing, but once I saw that other people were saying that and doing that for us, that I think is what really, for me, and I think for my family as well, kind of really lifted us up and helped us feel supported. And then just the fact that, you know, so many people did reach out and and offer support and help and books and, you know, different readings. And I had a coworker here that gave me a book that was kind of like a, uh, like a verse per day, but it really kind of did a nice job of explaining grief and, and that kind of thing. So I don't know if it's supernatural, but I think that that just kind of set me on that path a little bit. Yeah. And I think this is a, a nice transition into our next question. So one of your chapters is titled Finding Faith. You mentioned that you were never really a spiritual person before Lauren's death. So did God begin to do something in your heart afterwards? Yeah, I believe so. You know, I think the the first part was obviously that, just the the support and and the praying that was being done for us. And then I remember Tony, who performed um, Lauren's service, he asked me, was Lauren a believer? And I said, I do believe she was. You know, even though we hadn't raised the girls in church, we had gone occasionally she wore a cross necklace. She wanted one. She specifically asked for it. I now get to wear it. And I think that was just kind of a sign that she she did. She did believe. And so that kind of helped me understand that she was now going to go home and, and be with God. And, you know, because a lot of there's that stigma out there and just different religious beliefs about what happens when people die by suicide. And I respect other beliefs as well. But for me, like... That just helped me to understand that. So, and then I think just the fact that we were we were going to use this story and this pain for a purpose, like the book says. Um, and I think that he was guiding me in that direction. So that's you know that's kind of the big thing. And I and I don't even know why I started listening to like Christian radio, but all of a sudden one day I turned that on, and ever since like that's the majority of my radio time in the car so I think that kind of also helped kind of send me on that path to feeling more comfortable in my faith and what I believed so well Heather I'd like to thank you for joining us I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in today we will hear more on Heather's story in part two which is about how she finds purpose as a mom on a mission And we'll also be joined by her daughter, MJ. Thanks again. This is The Walk.